Good evening. This is the first time since taking the oath of office that I felt an issue was so important, so threatening, that it warranted talking directly with you, the American people. All of us agree that the gravest domestic threat facing our nation today is drugs. It was September 5th, 1989, and President George H.W. Bush was giving his first nationally televised speech from the Oval Office, rallying the public behind a major new offensive in the drug war. And to hammer home his message, the president's speechwriters came up with a dramatic touch that nobody was expecting. A little more than a minute into that speech, Bush suddenly reached under his desk and pulled out a plastic bag with a white, chunky substance, clutching it as he displayed it for the cameras. This, this is crack cocaine, seized a few days ago by drug enforcement agents in a park just across the street from the White House. It could easily have been heroin or PCP. It's as innocent looking as candy, but it's turning our cities into battle zones and it's murdering our children. Let there be no mistake, this stuff is poison. That bag of crack certainly got attention, but not in the way the president or his speechwriters had expected. White House officials had at first claimed that this crack had been seized in Lafayette Park across the street from the White House as part of an undercover drug buy. But 17 days after the speech, the Washington Post revealed that the whole thing was a setup. The president's speechwriters had come up with the idea, thinking that holding up a bag of crack was the perfect prop to illustrate that the drug problem was spreading everywhere across America, right up to the doorsteps of the White House. But as the Post reported, there hadn't been any crack dealing in Lafayette Park. So to match the words crafted by the speechwriters, federal drug agents were forced to lure a suspected teenage drug dealer from Northeast Washington to Lafayette Park, telling him, when he was baffled as to where that was, it was across the street from the White House. The young drug dealer's response, where the fuck is the White House? This past month, a podcast series called The Uncertain Hour looks back at the Bush crack speech as a cultural moment, a classic case of White House media manipulation that symbolizes how the drug problem has been used over the years to score political points. And it also looks at what happened to that young drug dealer, how he spent years in federal prison under harsh mandatory minimum sentencing laws that have had a devastating impact on minority communities. We'll examine the backstory of the Bush crack speech and what it tells us about the country's drug problems then and now with the host of The Uncertain Hour on this episode of Buried Treasure. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Well, as you probably know, this is uh, one of my favorite buried treasures uh, because uh, the author of that 
post story uh, was moi um, many years ago when I was the drug reporter for the Washington Post. And I got to say, it made quite a splash at the time. Okay, well, not to feed your ego, Isakoff. But Why not? Because <laughs> you don't need it. But this story hit like a bombshell for me personally. I was uh, a young reporter working for a weekly newspaper called Legal Times. I was covering the local criminal justice system and the courts. And I knew your work, of course. The thing about the story, it, like, it hit me on a couple of levels. One was, look, this was the age of sort of the image meisters, uh, you know, yep. the Michael Deavers. And, and, and we all felt like so manipulated by politics and how they were trying to manipulate our, our emotions. And so to see the Bush White House be exposed like this was just so satisfying. But on another level, it was a really important story. And I think we're going to touch on in, in this mm-hmm. interview. And that is, I covered the drug war I, and I saw every day in the courthouse, uh, the sort of collateral damage and the wreckage of the drug war. On the one hand, how damaging crack cocaine was and how it fueled so much violence, but also these policies that were right. putting away young teenagers right. for 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, just exactly. insane senses doing all of these awful things. So it, that's, I think, what the yeah. real message is. And in is. many ways, you know, for all the attention, you know, the story got at the time, the aftermath of what happened to that young kid, Keith Jackson, a teenager from Northeast Washington, went to Springer High School here, never had any problems before, uh, you know, first time offender. But under these mandatory sentencing laws, the federal judge in his case, Stanley Sporkin, was forced against his will to impose a mandatory sentence of 10 years, not for that crack buy, because he ultimately got off on that one buy, but there were some others yeah. also set up by federal drug agents. Yeah, these judges uh, were, were yeah. on the front lines of these terrible policies, and they hated it. I remember right. talking to them at the time. They just hated it. And it's really interesting. I, I know we're going to talk about this, yeah. to look back all these years and how we as a, as a society, how our politicians think so differently about this issue right now. But at the time, you know, there was this pervasive fear right. fueled by politicians right. uh, that uh, led to those policies. Well, that is exactly the issue we're going to talk about with our guest, Chrissy Clark, who has revived this story and put it together in this brilliant podcast, uh, The Uncertain Hour, Inside America's Drug War. So let's get at it. We now have with us Chrissy Clark, who is the host of The Uncertain Hour, senior correspondent for Marketplace. Chrissy, good to talk to you. Hey, great to talk to you guys. So I am just, you know, was thrilled when you uh, reached out to me uh, many months ago and told me you were doing this story, looking back at the Bush crack speech. Tell me what interested you about this to start? So I had been interested in looking back to sort of the crack era because we talk so much right now about opioids and the opioid epidemic and what's happening right now. And it is, by all accounts, the worst drug epidemic that our country has ever faced. But I grew up in an era, I was a kid in the 80s and early 90s, and that was when crack was the thing that everybody was talking about. And it was the media, it, 
there was a media frenzy around it. And I just that was just kind of part of the wallpaper of my childhood, hearing about crack and how scary it was and how dangerous it was. And so I started to wonder, so whatever happened, whatever happened to crack? Where where did it go? Because you don't hear about it anymore. Does that mean that the war on drugs actually worked or did something else happen? So that was one of the things that started motivating my research. And then as I was looking at the crack epidemic and the opioid epidemic and kind of comparing the two, I read some article that made vague reference to this Bush speech where he held up a baggie of crack and they mentioned, the writer mentioned in the article, you know, you would never see a politician today talking about opioids the way that George H.W. Bush talked about crack in that speech. And can you imagine Trump holding up, you know, a bag of OxyContin and and doing the same thing? And I had never heard about the speech. I was a kid when it happened. And so I said, I need to find out more about this. And so I started researching and quickly found your article (laughs) and was like, oh, my God, this is... (laughs) This is an amazing story, and people need to be reminded of this, especially right now. Well, one of the great things you did in this series is you like delved into the backstory even more than I had at the time about how the speech came about. So why don't you sort of walk us through how that happened? Because you talked to, I believe, uh, David Demarest, who was the chief speechwriter or chief of the speechwriters in the White House at the time. Yeah, I talked to David Demarest. I actually talked to a few speechwriters from the time because one question I had was just like, so whose idea was this to begin with? And that was sort of a hot potato. I wasn't sure if anybody was going to claim responsibility (laughs) slash credit slash blame for that. But we did end up talking to Mark Davis, who said, yeah, this was my idea. You know, I talked to a couple of other speechwriters at the time who said, oh, it kind of came up in a in discussions. I can't remember whose idea it was, but Mark Davis said this was my idea. And basically, so this was the first year of President George H.W. Bush's administration. He was kind of trying to climb out of the technicolor shadow of Ronald Reagan and make a name for himself. And one of the ways they decided to do that was to really seize on the issue of drugs. It was already in public opinion polls. It was the most important threat facing our nation, according to the majority of Americans. And so they decided to Bush's first televised speech from the Oval Office was going to be all about this. This was the number one issue that the polls showed the public cared about at the time. There was this sense that crack trade was spreading throughout the country. It was out of control, fueling violence, fueling murders in our inner cities. And the White House, I mean, I guess they had a legitimate reason to want to galvanize the public's attention on this issue, didn't they? I think it's very fair to say that drugs were, and crack in particular, were really scaring a lot of Americans. And it was absolutely devastating certain communities in the country. And the country needed to have a serious conversation about what to do and and policies to try to help people who were addicted to crack. I think that there became a bit of a media and political feedback loop around what the threat of crack actually entailed. By the time Bush gave his speech in 1989, crack use 
was actually already on the decline. It was not spreading to suburban neighborhoods and uh, to far-flung corners of the country as it was depicted. It was not actually being sold in front of the White House or in the park right across right. the street. Right. And there had the been no, no drug uh, crack buys that authorities had found in Lafayette Park at all. That, it, and that's what really piqued your interest, right? right? right because yeah. when you learn all, from the park police that there had never been a crack buy in the park across the street from the Until White House. Until that, except for that DA buy for the White House was the right. uh, quote I got. And that was what really piqued my interest in this story. What I want to hear Chrissy talk about a little bit is you just made the point that crack use was actually on the decline. It clearly wasn't having the impact broadly across America as the Bush White House wanted people to think. But the sort of stagecraft, the fear-mongering, the way the media covered it, the way politicians talked about it, had a real impact in terms of policy. And you interviewed actually a really interesting character for the podcast who Mike and I both know from having covered these issues, Eric Sterling, who played Mm -hmm. a really interesting role in how all of this evolved. Talk about Eric Sterling and what he told you. Yeah. So Eric Sterling was at the time a Democratic staffer for the U.S. House of Representatives, and he was involved in writing key parts of this legislation that had actually been passed a couple years before Bush gave his speech in 1986. This was the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986. And it was all a part of, I mean, I think it's important to remember at this time, Being hawkish on drugs and calling for an even more amplified war on drugs was not just something that Republicans were were talking about. This was a bipartisan issue. This was something that Democrats and Republicans were both. um, It was almost an arms race around the war on drugs. You you call it a a bidding war. And I think Sterling talks about actually writing that legislation where, you know, one member of Congress would offer an amendment saying, let's put $100 million into this for more enforcement. And then another would say, no, 200 million. Exactly. And another person, actually, I think it was Mark Davis, um, the speechwriter at the time, he described that era and the attitude on drugs as the sound of one hand clapping. Everybody was saying, we need more of this. We need stiffer and tougher law enforcement. And so what was so important about this legislation that Eric Sterling worked on. This was basically where mandatory minimums sentencing got encoded into law when it came to various drugs. And the frenzy around what sentences were attached to what drugs and what quantities of drugs Eric Sterling is pretty candid now and says, we didn't know what we were doing. It was random. Like, we didn't even really understand the metric system compared to the to ounces. So we were pinning amounts of crack versus cocaine to certain sentences. Chrissy, let's talk about how these two stories merge. The, the Bush crack speech and the impact of mandatory minimums on the kid who was basically used as a pawn in that Bush crack speech. You know, the way I wrote about it at the time, and you have amplified now, basically the speechwriters write the speech. They think it's a great idea. They call up somebody from the White House, calls up the Justice Department. Can you make a bus that we can use for the speech? The Justice Department calls the DEA, the DEA. EA says, well, we don't really have anything around the White House, but we got a few undercover investigations going on. Let's see if we can move one of those suspects there to the White House. That kid was Keith Jackson, a teenager at Springer High School in Northeast Washington. Tell us what happened 
to Keith Jackson, both in that drug buy and then the aftermath, where he runs into mandatory minimum sentences. Yeah, so he was, I mean, he did not know. When when he got a call from an acquaintance of his one day in early September saying, hey, there's a deal that we can do here. He had no idea what he was getting himself into. And it's interesting, you know, you talk now even to some of the speechwriters that I spoke to who worked on the speech, they say, you know, this whole story was kind of a footnote in the end, like the scandal around the setup for the speech. It didn't really matter. It didn't actually change the needle, move the needle in terms of public perception or um, in in terms of how amplified the war on drugs did get in the coming years. But it was not a footnote for Keith Jackson. It dramatically changed his life. He was not convicted for the drug buy in front of the White House, but he was convicted for three other sales that had happened over the course of uh, the couple months before then. And they were four relatively small quantities of crack, but because of the mandatory minimums that were in place, and in many ways still are, he was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison. 10 years in federal prison. And as I recall it, the judge, Stanley Sporkin, really didn't want to give him such a harsh sentence. No. In fact, he said, you seem like a nice young man who was out of control for a period of time, but this is too harsh. But my hands are tied here. The legislation tells me that the law says that this is how much I have to charge you um, or how much I have to sentence you. And he actually suggested to Keith Jackson at his sentencing, maybe you can appeal to President Bush and see if he can lessen this sentence because he was intimately involved in this whole story. Did he seek a, par- um, did he seek a pardon or a commutation of a sentence? It's unclear if he did. There's no record of that. I, we actually went to the office uh, of where, where they keep track of those things, and they had no record of yeah. one. It seems um, unlikely I, that he would have gotten one, given well, the uh, remember, tenor of the remember time. Remember President Bush's reaction uh, after the story broke, and he was asked about this, and he said, does anybody have any sympathy for that drug guy? So he gave you a And a he, as you said in the he podcast, you, he really owned it when he was asked uh, by reporters about it. I wanted to ask you, Chris. So you, you know, were talking about the kind of racial impact of these laws, but I, I also wonder whether consciously or unconsciously you thought, and you didn't say this in the, in the podcast, but I wonder if you thought at any point that there was an, a racial element to you know, that particular speech and the decision to bring in a young black teenager from the inner city and to set him up. And just in terms of the entire – the whole kind of climate of fear around this issue, you know, I remember – and this is something you did talk about in the podcast – when Len Bias, the uh, star University of Maryland basketball player, uh, died and and it was a a drug-related death. It first reported that it was crack cocaine because in some ways that's what everyone wanted to believe. It turned out not to have been crack cocaine. But talk about the sort of racial element to this story um, at the time. Yeah. I mean, everybody I talked to who lived through that time, many of Keith's classmates, as well as historians who look at these sorts of dynamics, talk about how much crack was really painted as a black threat and was really stigmatized and and racialized. And 
that actually has a long history. Drugs and and policies around drugs are often racialized, going back to the first drug laws back in the 1800s around opium, when specifically there was only one form of opium that was outlawed, and that was smoking opium. And that was just so happened to be the, the way that Chinese immigrants took opium, but you were still allowed to ingest it or to, to shoot it up for many years. So there is this long history of kind of tying a particular drug and a drug scare to a racial minority in the country. And I think that in the case of crack, that was definitely and, going on. And it's worth noting that crack was not just used by uh, black people in the inner city. It was also used by white people. Now, disproportionately by African-Americans, but I think because it was cheaper and they were poorer and because uh, people living in those communities uh, who were so vulnerable uh, felt more desperate. Right. And and that is when people look at the sentencing disparities between crack cocaine and powder cocaine, they point to that. In raw numbers, many more white people have used crack than black people. But when it comes to the rates of crack use per in, capita, uh, per capita, in, yeah, per capita in, in among black Americans, it was a, a much higher rate. But crack powder cocaine and crack cocaine, they're the same chemical, but the sentencing around each of them was very different. Just to uh, go back to that Bush crack speech and give a little reminder of what a cultural splash it made at the time, it made it on to Saturday Night Live. And we do have the clip from Saturday Night Live right after that speech was given. And the drug problem. Bigger than ever. <laughs> this is this is cocaine crack. I'll tell you something, this crack was bought right here in the White House. <laughs> three feet from this desk. <laughs> Drug problem worse than we ever thought. Marijuana being grown in the Rose Garden. <laughs> Millie, the bush dog, bringing in crack pipe from the South Lawn. It's bad, bad. <laughs> Had to close down an ecstasy factory in the Lincoln bedroom. <laughs> That is, I got that was Dana Carvey, of course, doing his excellent George H. W. Bush imitation. Chrissy, your thoughts on hearing that? I mean, he's really good at <laughs> what he does. But I think that it does. It's funny. It's both. Um, it's a hilarious clip, but there is something kind of bittersweet about it for me because when I hear that and when I look back at the articles that you were writing at the time, where you really were kind of exposing this fiction that had been created, this myth and this narrative that had been created around crack that really didn't hew closely to what was going on with where the real threats were. I think that it's kind of this missed opportunity that we had. You know, 30 years ago, there was this moment where the media was taking a closer look at what Bush was doing when it came to the war on drugs and what was actually really going on with crack and the crack market. And yet, in the end, that ended up not making much of a difference for the next couple right. we, for the next couple decades. We covered the, covered the Clinton crime bill, where they increased 
mandatory minimum sentences. And, and, and we should and, point out something that's probably going to get more attention now that Joe Biden is in the race. He was the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he pushed those tough-on-crime bills with those uh, mandatory He's minimum sentences. He's now made a uh, sort of a yep. semi-apology. Right. Yeah, you could think of this as sort of a moment when we did question ourselves and say, maybe we're misunderstanding the nature of the crack epidemic. Maybe we need to think more carefully about who crack is affecting and how we can help those that are being affected. And sadly, that was not what ended up happening. Now we are. We're rolling back some of the mandatory minimum laws um, very slowly, but bit by bit. And I think there is consensus now in the same way there was consensus 30 years ago in the other direction that we did go too far. But there were moments where we might have come to that conclusion a lot earlier. And meanwhile, for three decades, people have been dealing with the consequences of the direction we did go. So what did happen to the crack epidemic? That's a really good question. So um, in many ways, it kind of burnt itself out. When I talk to drug policy experts and folks who have researched this, they talk about how If you look at any given city where crack hit hard and you look at the use of RAID and kind of new initiants of new people who are using the drug each year, you see this kind of three-year peak and fall in any given city where there's a spike of new users and then it drops off pretty dramatically after that. And the best theory, I mean, epidemics are difficult to get to the bottom of, but the best theories that people have are that in many ways, the stigma around crack, because it was It's a kind of drug that when the devastation, sort of the harrowing effects that it can have on someone become pretty visible pretty quickly. And so what that means is that folks around that who are witnessing that often they might say, "Okay, that drug is not for me. I might try another drug, but that one I, I know an uncle and an aunt and a sister who have been affected by that and it did not go well. And drug researchers that I talk to say that that's actually something that happens in many drug epidemics. It might have a a longer or a slower period of peaking and falling, but ultimately the stigma of the drug and the devastation that the drug can have will kind of scare a new generation of users away from it. So I was going to ask, what lessons can we draw from that experience for the current opiate crisis, which is really serious and which is uh, having a devastating impact on a lot of communities across the country? Well, something that I think you hear much more now than you did back in the late 80s and early 90s is that addiction is a disease, that we need to focus on helping drug users rather rather than trying to stamp out the supply, which can feel like a game of whack-a-mole. We need to focus on helping the people who, who are addicted and try to prevent them from harming themselves or others. I think that that's an approach and a stance that we hear a lot about now. We didn't hear that a lot back in the 80s, though if you go to the communities that were affected the hardest by crack, it was something that a lot of people were saying to themselves and to anybody who would listen. I spoke with a woman, Carrie Bridges, who was a classmate of Keith Jackson's, and 
this is something that she's been saying for the last 30 years. We need to, her mother was, uh, and her uncle, many, many of her family members struggled with drugs, were addicted to crack. And she said, we needed to help them. We didn't need to lock up the people who were selling, who were selling the crack for decades. We needed to help the people who were addicted. And I think that that's something that now people are open to that idea. But I think that a lot of the people who who were affected by crack 30 years ago feel a little frustrated that this is only now an approach that the country seems to be moving towards. Chrissy, this is, make, this is making me uh, think about uh, when I was covering uh, drug trials and homicide trials in, in D.C. Superior Court. And the people who, as you were just alluding to this, the people who did understand what was happening and how unfair and destructive these policies were, were obviously the people who were being affected by them. And in those trials, you began to see jurors kind of taking control of the situation and and you Hmm. began to see jury nullification. And I remember trials Hmm. in which the jurors would say, you know what, we're not sending another young black teenager to prison because he's gotten in, uh, involved in all of this drug situation. So, uh, yeah. you know, that's people need to listen, right. I guess. Chrissy, I got, I got one uh, quick question for you. Did you reach out to Keith Jackson? I did many times and in many and in many forms of media from a phone to email to actually knocking on former addresses of his. I did speak with him. Finally, I also spoke with his mother briefly. And, you know, I made my best case for why I wanted to hear from him and why I think a lot of Americans need to know his experience. And he, he's been talked so much about, but we actually have heard very little except for a few brief moments in trial transcripts from him. And so I spoke with him. I, I asked him if he would talk to me on the record. And he said, you know, I just want to put this behind me. I don't he want doesn't to want to relive yeah, it. I should say yeah. I, I, had, I have reached out to him over the years and gotten the same response. All right. Well, everybody can hear a lot more about this and uh, the great journalism that Chrissy Clark has done on the uncertain hour inside America's drug war. Chrissy, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Chrissy. And thanks for writing that article. (laughs) (laughs) A long time ago. (laughs) Thanks to Chrissy Clark for joining us on this episode of Buried Treasure. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.